0: Hello, my name is Emma Skye, and I'm Director of Yale's International Leadership Center. I'm joined today by General Petraeus for a discussion on global affairs. General Petraeus served 37 years in the US military, including as the Commanding General of Multinational Forces in Iraq, Commander of US Central Command, and Commander of Coalition Forces in Afghanistan. Following his service in the military, he served as the Director of the CIA. He's now a partner in the global investment firm Kola Berg Kravis Roberts KKR and chairman of the KKR Global Institute, and a Kissinger Fellow at the Jackson School, where we co-teach a class on great power competition and cooperation. He's also the co-author of the excellent book, Conflict, The Evolution of Warfare from 1945 to Ukraine. Well, General, it's hard to be optimistic about 2024. Last year saw the greatest global resurgence of conflict since the end of World War II, and we're seeing more leaders around the world pursue their goals using military means. Diplomatic efforts are achieving little peace and are merely focused on managing fallout, negotiating humanitarian access prisoner exchanges. So I want to start our conversation with the Middle East. Gaza is now at the center of great power competition following the horrific Hamas attack of 7th of October in which 1,200 Israelis were killed and 250 taken hostage. US support has enabled a ferocious and disproportionate Israeli response that has caused the deaths of over 25,000 Palestinians, 40% of whom are children, leading to accusations of war crimes, ethnic cleansing and genocide. So has the Biden administration made a serious error in its unconditional support for this far-right Israeli government, which is violating international humanitarian law and undermining the rules-based international order and putting itself at odds with public opinion across the global South, as well as with young people in Western countries? General.
1: Well, first of all, great to be with you, Emma. Uh, Thanks. It's always a privilege to do something with you. And I should recall for the audience uh, how appreciative I remain uh, for your many years in Iraq, uh, but particularly when you headed a a very important initiative that had to do with reconciliation uh, during the surge in Iraq. Uh, And you are our liaison uh, with a team to the Iraqi government at a very sensitive time, as we were seeking to reconcile with Sunni insurgents uh, and to get the Shia majority government to to support our efforts. And you did brilliantly in that, as you have in a number of other endeavors over the years, uh, not the least of which was your own book, uh, On Iraq, uh, which as I recall, started out with a wonderful theme sentence, essentially along the lines of, it didn't have to turn out this way. Um, And thanks for starting off with an easy question Um, You've always been good at lofting softballs uh, toward me. Um, Let me start just by perhaps taking a tiny bit of issue um, in the way you characterize the Biden administration's support. I should probably also tell the audience I don't even register to vote, much less uh, vote or support either party or any candidates, although I do advise members of either party. So I'm truly a non-political individual in this regard, and I'll be probably during this conversation uh, critical in some cases of the current administration, in some cases uh, supportive. Uh, and in this case, I think that that was a slightly unnuanced uh, description of the Biden administration policy, as I see it. I don't think it's truly unconditional support uh, for what you uh, characterize as the far-right Israeli government i think it's m- more conditional than that uh, certainly there has been an unequivocal uh, support for israel's right to defend itself uh, in the wake of the horrific uh, events of Ten Seven, 7 uh, unspeakable barbaric actions uh, that resulted in a very considerable loss uh, considering the size population of israel and you know to put it in perspective the equivalent number in U.S. terms to the 1,200 who were killed would be 42,000 in the U.S. case. And the equivalent number of hostages would be roughly somewhere around 7,000 or so. So this was a really traumatic event. And I think the administration was right, along with the vast majority of Congress, to uh, highlight Israel's right to defend itself against a group like that. Uh, And indeed, I tend to agree with the three objectives that the Netanyahu now really government of national unity, because it has opposition figures among them, including two former chiefs of defense staff that I know, Uh, but the objectives to destroy Hamas, I actually think is correct. How you do that matters greatly. And I think the administration has repeatedly pointed that out. President, vice president, secretary of state all have repeatedly said uh, that there has to be a reduction in uh, loss of innocent civilian life, et cetera, et cetera. Um, dismantling the political wing of Hamas, I think also there's no way that Hamas can ever be allowed to run Gaza again the way they did in the past, given what transpired uh, on 10-7. Uh, and then also obviously getting their hostages back, although the third objective is obviously in considerable tension with the first one, because the third objective, getting the hostages back, would very likely require some kind of ceasefire uh, of an indeterminate period, prisoner swap uh, and extensive negotiations and so forth that would allow Hamas to regroup, uh, resupply and, and so on. Um, the challenge I see it uh, is that the way this is being done, uh, again, as the President and uh, Secretary of State repeatedly have noted, Um, does really matter. You'll recall that in the operations center of the command posts that I was uh, privileged to lead, uh, having visited every one of those command posts over the years when I was a two, three, and four-star in Iraq, and then you stayed even longer, um, there was always a sign on the wall that asked, will this operation take more bad guys off the street than it creates by its conduct? And if the answer to that question was no, in other words, it's going to create more bad guys, it's going to uh, inspire the next generation of jihadists or extremists, then you're supposed to really re-examine that operation, figure out how you either get to yes or uh, put it on hold. Um, And again, I think that that would be something that would be very wise. I also think there need to be additional big ideas, if you will, to the three that I've described as the objectives of this operation. Um, One is... Uh, to identify a future for the Palestinian people that is better than the one that they have had. And in my view, this has to be uh, two states for two people, uh, which is what the Biden administration, again, has called for uh, in no uncertain terms, noting that, uh, again, Prime Minister Netanyahu has rejected that and has said that they will insist on security from the river to the sea. Uh, So they're quite at odds there. And this is by no means, therefore, unconditional support uh, for the Israeli government. Um, But as you'll recall, when we would go into a Ramadi or a Fallujah or a Bakuba, these are all cities of several hundred thousand people, sometimes as many as 400,000, Mosul nearly two million in those days. uh, We would say that we are going to make your life better. We're going to get the extremists out of your midst or the insurgents or later on the Shia militia. Out of the shia populated areas uh, we will then secure you uh, we'll then do reconstruction we're going to restore basic services repair damaged uh, infrastructure reopen schools uh, clinics um, mosques uh, markets you name it uh, and then did it and carried through and showed that life would be better uh, if they supported us and then ultimately transfer that support to the iraqi government which we were able to do uh, over time during the course of the surge, and it enabled us to drive down violence, as you recall, by nearly 90% during the 18-month period of, of the surge. And I think that there is an awful lot in what we did that would be very transferable uh, and provides a good model uh, for the Israeli Defense Forces and really for the Israeli government. The additional piece is then who's going to oversee Gaza. And certainly, Israel should not reoccupy Gaza for the long term, But I think they're going to have to run Gaza, if you will, or oversee Gaza uh, for a substantial period of time, uh, but should announce upfront that they want to develop and uh, to enable uh, a Palestinian entity that would be competent, capable, trustworthy, and so forth. But I don't see one of those available on deployment orders, if you will, to come over from the West Bank, nor would they want to go in on the backs of Israeli tanks. Um, So I think that component is also very, very necessary, and then also uh, a real idea on how they're going to keep Hamas from reconstituting, keeping in mind that the military definition of destroy, which is what Israel seeks to do to Hamas, uh, requires them to render Hamas incapable of accomplishing its mission without reconstitution that means you cannot allow them to reconstitute in fact that was learned the hard way after our departure from iraq uh, in late 2011 and the iraqi government and security forces took their eye off of what was by then the islamic state and the next thing you knew a couple of years later established the first ever caliphate we had to go back in had to help them uh, to destroy the caliphate uh, both in northern iraq and then also with our partners the syrian democratic forces in northeastern Syria. So, again, uh, to sum that up, I I don't think this is unconditional support. I see why some uh, in certain parts of the world and and countries might uh, see it as that. I think that the administration has tried to be much more nuanced than that. Uh, the Israeli government has not, in all cases, by any means, taken the advice that has been offered uh, on various aspects of the campaign. Then, finally, I should just note that while I do believe that Hamas should be destroyed, again, this is not an organization with which you can reconcile, although they will need to reconcile with the tens of thousands of essentially bureaucrats that will be needed to turn the lights back on and get the water flowing and repair damage and so on. Um, but uh, at the end of the day, they, they should approach this as a counterinsurgency campaign with a clear hold build, rather than the idea of a conventional military campaign Uh, And very worried about hearts and minds, as one always is in a counterinsurgency campaign. Over.
0: So the Biden administration has been trying to prevent regional escalation and to sort of reimpose order in the region. But despite the attempts, things seem to be heating up. Iran presents itself as the leader of the axis of resistance, training, equipping, Hamas in Palestine, Hezbollah in Lebanon, Houthis in Yemen, and Shabi in Iraq. And, you know, in recent days and weeks, we've seen Israel and Lebanon firing rockets at each other, leading to the displacement of hundreds of thousands on both sides of their border. The Houthis attacking, Red Sea shipping, forcing boats to go around the Horn of Africa and disturbing the global economy, and the US with UK support bombing Yemen. We've seen sheer militias in Iraq and Syria constantly attacking U.S. troops and U.S. retaliating, a suicide bombing in Kerman in Iran, Iran assassinating a Kurdish businessman in Abil, Iran missile attack on Pakistan and back again. And it just seems to be, you know, going up and up and up. So the question I have for you is, what does Iran want And to what degree are its interests aligned with China and Russia?
1: Well, that's another easy question, thank you. Um, Actually, it is with what Iran wants. As we all know, Iran has always, Iran's leaders have had three objectives really since uh, the establishment uh, of this particular regime. And that is to first and foremost, stay in power. uh, Second, to destroy Israel and third, to oust the United States uh, from the region. There are some other objectives, uh, obviously with some of their Sunni neighbors and so on, but that's essentially it, and their actions typically follow uh, from pursuit of those objectives. Um, I am I am concerned about the escalation in the region, but if we walk around quickly before talking about the alignment of interests with China and Russia, I would note that touch wood, I think, Hezbollah has actually been constrained in how it has used this enormous uh, number of rockets and missiles, nearly 150,000 apparently, uh, and it's unleashing relatively modest numbers of those each day and limiting the distance that they're uh, attacking as well. And Israel is generally being constrained in response, although it has gone after some leaders uh, in Beirut and in Syria and so forth. That particular theater, though, I think, unless Israel is frustrated about Hezbollah being south of the Latani River, which, as you'll recall, the UN Security Council uh, directive said that Hezbollah should be north of it. Uh, But the UN peacekeeping force there has been unable to push them north of that. If, If that becomes a concern, because it means that the hundreds of thousands of individuals within range from Hezbollah elements south of the Latani can't return home or have a very reduced quality of life, uh, then this could escalate. Uh, the Houthis in Yemen, I think this is going to be a tough uh, campaign, but they cannot be allowed to disrupt the maritime freedom of navigation in the Red Sea, which sees about 15% of maritime traffic transit it. Um, right now that is is down considerably. Um, It doesn't have a massive impact on the global economy because it just requires ships to go a good bit farther uh, when going from Asia or the Gulf to Europe and vice versa, another 10 to 14 days or so. It doesn't reduce what would be much more important, which would be the flow of crude or natural gas out of the Gulf, which I don't think Iran will interdict because their own Crude oil, about 1.5 million barrels or a bit more per day goes out through the Gulf as well. But that would be significant. Um, The one that I'm most worried about actually is the Shia militia supported by Iran in Iraq, which have carried out way, way over 100 attacks now uh, on various U.S. forces and various Iraqi bases that are there at the request of the Iraqi prime minister to help the Iraqi security forces do what they failed to do in the wake of our departure in late 2000 dilemma, which is keep an eye and pressure on the Islamic state, because again, they can reconstitute if you remove that pressure. Uh, the Islamic state as an army, which established the caliphate, of course that has been destroyed, uh, but there are still substantial, essentially insurgent elements, terrorist cells, if you will, of the Islamic State uh, that if not attended to, uh, could grow back, could reconstitute, could cause serious problems for Iraq and also for parts of Syria. Um, And so I'm worried that, and and as you know, once you remove your footprint, once you remove the infrastructure, the bases, the communications architecture, all of the different, even the contracts uh, for everything, once that is done, it's very difficult to reestablish it, as was learned when the U.S. went back into Iraq a couple of years after we left uh, at the request of the Iraqis to help them, again, deal with a reconstituted uh, Islamic State. So all of these are very, very challenging. Um, I'd put the Iran and Pakistan ones in a separate category. That's really between the two of those. It doesn't have to do with Hamas. These others have some relation to, to Hamas in each case, Uh, Those involve uh, individuals on each other's soil that are threatening uh, the other country. Uh, And when Iran carried out an attack, Pakistan had to respond. I don't think that will continue uh, unless, of course, these groups that have sanctuary uh, in Iran and Pakistan respectively are able to carry out significant attacks again. Now, how do these align with China and Russia? Well, certainly with Russia, which still feels as if it's in a competition with the U.S.-led West, and anything that diminishes the West uh, reduces um, our influence in various parts of the world, especially the greater Middle East um, is seen as in its interest, especially as we are providing such substantial assistance for Ukraine and really leading the Western world in that regard, although I'd point out that the European assistance now in, in security terms as well as in all different terms, so therefore adding in humanitarian, financial, economic uh, it, uh, support, uh, that in aggregate is more than double what the U.S. has provided, and it's just slightly more than the U.S. in the subcategory of security assistance. Um, but again, clearly aligned uh, with Russia, which is you know one of the BRICs, the Brazil, Russia, India, China, uh, South Africa, which now has added new members, uh, not all in consonants and in various views, but also then ties into the global South that does not in all cases embrace the rules-based international order uh, that we are so passionately defending with our Western allies and partners, uh, not for charitable reasons, but because it's international security and prosperity interests uh, to do so. Um, a little bit different with China uh, as the second largest economy in the world. China doesn't really want to see the global economy uh, stressed, especially given the economic challenges that it is facing uh, of late, which are really uh, quite significant. um, And we might talk about later. But given that, uh, while they would like to have more interest, and for example, they brokered some kind of rapprochement between Iran and Saudi Arabia recently, showing their growing involvement there, again, their interaction with the the third world countries. They would like to also uh, see a global uh, order which at at least doesn't criticize their domestic activities in the same way that the US led Western uh, countries often do. So again, it's a fairly complex question. Uh, China and Russia don't applaud everything that Iran is doing. Uh, Russia probably a bit more so. It's much more of a revolutionary power in that regard, not that China is a status quo power, uh, as I noted. But Russia, of course, also has the agreement with Iran when it comes to buying Iranian drones and and presumably now missiles that have proven to be very, very helpful to Russia, uh, given the uh, sanctions on Russia and the export controls on what can be sent to Russia, uh, which makes it much harder for Russia uh, to build some of these systems on its own and to replace uh, many of the battlefield systems that they have lost. So moving on to look at
0: the US and its ability to project power and deter war, which is really dependent on its will and capacity to act, So I want to ask you how big an issue do you feel that America's political dysfunction is? We see a Congress polarized to the point of paralysis and we see potentially two old men past their prime, shall we say, battling out for the presidential elections, delegitimizing each other with the risk of violent contestation of the election results and the capacity constraints facing you know, in terms of strange U.S. munitions production and poor procurement decisions?
1: Well, um, first of all, as you know, I'm a tiny bit more of a glass half full than a glass half empty with great respect. These questions are tending toward. Um, first of all, I think that uh, certainly there are challenges in Congress without question. Uh, the polarization and the partisanship is uh, very concerning. The dysfunction, as you term it. But I think that there will be agreement, actually, uh, on a package that, for example, provides very substantial additional assistance to Ukraine, uh, funding for the southern border, additional policies on uh, illegal immigration uh, and asylum, um, support for Taiwan, funding for the Federal Emergency Management Agency you name it, I think it'll be in this particular package because it is required. Uh, but there's going to be a lot of drama uh, around that, uh, again, without question. But I think that we can certainly continue to play the role that we have, which is the leader of the Western world, the country, you know, indispensable power. Um, but certainly there are questions about the ability of the U.S. to continue to be the indispensable partner around the world. I travel that world constantly. I'm right. In, I'm in Toronto right now. And again, all eyes are on... Uh, the U.S. uh, on the, again, dysfunction in the U.S. Congress, the potential outcome of the elections in the United States in November, et cetera, et cetera. Um, So there are challenges there without question. Um, I tend to think we're going to get through those. um, But again, uh, it remains to be seen. Um, And then in terms of the capacity constraints, uh, we are ramping up. Uh, the production of a variety of munitions that we never really thought we would use in the numbers that Ukraine is using on the battlefield and that we are seeking to support them to continue to do. Uh, the European countries are doing likewise. Ukraine is doing likewise. And very impressively, I might add, in the latter category, having been there a couple of times uh, in the last seven or eight months and and talked to the individual the Minister for Strategic Industries, who is overseeing that particular effort. Um, So again, it's never as fast as we would like. Uh, The transformation of our forces similarly, that's another separate category really, but the imperative of transitioning from what might be described as a small number of large, heavily manned, incredibly capable, exorbitantly expensive, but increasingly vulnerable platforms, to a world of a massive number of much smaller, less expensive unmanned systems that increasingly will be not not just remotely piloted, but in many cases, increasingly will be algorithmically driven. Uh, That has to take place. It's a very important component of ensuring that deterrence is solid, especially in the Indo-Pacific region, keeping in mind that deterrence is a function of a potential adversary's assessment of your capabilities on the one hand and your willingness to employ them on the other. And there can't be any doubt about either of those. And again, transforming our forces is a particularly important part of ensuring there's no question about our capabilities. Um, Again, none of this is ever as fast as um, we'd like to see it. Uh, There are many elements in what Senator McCain used to term the military industrial congressional complex Uh, that favor the status quo or elements of continuing doing what it is that we have been doing because of uh, various uh, either uh, industry uh, preferences, congressional uh, district desires, uh, you name it, Uh, even military service uh, desires. Um, So it's never, ever easy. Uh, It takes a very forceful Secretary of Defense such as the one we were privileged to have, have when I was uh, had the three, four-star combat commands that you mentioned, Iraq Central Command in Afghanistan. We had Secretary Gates, uh, who pushed very, very hard uh, to make procurement uh, function much more rapidly and to get what we needed out to our soldiers on the battlefield. Uh, but these are even more transformative decisions. They're more expensive, uh, as I laid out. Um, and uh, really quite revolutionary. And it's just going to take determination and vision and leadership. um, And we'll see how quick or sluggish that process is in the years ahead.
0: Well, this year, 2024, is the year that the world votes. And it's something like half the world's population, some 4 billion people are going to the polls. Do you think this bodes well in the battle of democracy versus autocracy and which elections should we be watching closely?
1: Well, again, I'm one of those who believes along with Winston Churchill, that democracy is the worst form of government, except for all the others. Um, and I am a believer in democracy and the the hallmarks of it, freedom of speech and freedom of expression and all the rest of that. And I'm happy to note that there were some individuals that um, exercised their freedom of expression during my session at the University of Toronto today. Um, it's great to be relevant. Um, it's the first such uh, intervention that they've had. And it was actually quite, quite orderly. Um, so, again, I think in general, it's good. But obviously it depends, it depends on the outcomes. And so if you look at some of the most significant ones that have taken place already or will take place, uh, Taiwan, the election is done. Uh, The ruling party retained the presidency um, to the concern of China because it's a bit more uh, vocal about uh, its continuing democracy and, and degree of independence. Um but it lost its majority uh, in the legislature, which may actually offset it and could actually be, uh, I think a reasonably um stable government as it and uh, the West and others try to be firm but not needlessly provocative with China. Um, I think the u s. election is perhaps uh, given that I'm an American, but I think given that the u s again uh, is can be often uh, should be the indispensable power that that is a particularly important one and given the uh, degree of unpredictability and contrary views on certain major issues of one of the party's likely candidates uh, that could have a particularly profound effect again on the u.s led west Um, i think india is a very important one i think you know the 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 odds are quite strong that uh, Prime Minister Modi will be reelected. Uh, there are issues there uh, that are causing some concern uh, that have evolved in recent years, with uh, again some illiberal tendencies uh, emerging, uh, a degree of uh, perhaps polarization, or again, if you will, partisanship, uh, albeit uh, in this case, in some cases, between uh, religious. Uh, groups rather than uh, political. Um, But India is rapidly growing. Uh, It is the largest country in the world. It's the largest democracy in the world. Um, Again, some of these issues, judiciary, press, and so forth are under pressure, Um, but a hugely important country. And by the way, it also, of course, straddles uh, various groups in the world. It, the U.S. is its largest trading partner. It's a member of the Quad, uh, U.S., Australia, Japan, and India, uh, which is essentially in response uh, to a Chinese growing influence in that region, in the Indo-Pacific region. But it's also a member of the BRICS, um, and it really has still in its DNA um, leadership of the non-aligned movement, and it often seeks to provide uh, a window into the global south. In fact, when we had the Trilateral Commission there last spring, India, I think very notably included, a number. it was the host country, and it included a number of countries from the global south and quite prominently put them on stage, I think really so that those of us from the US and the other developed Western countries that participate in the trilateral commission uh, would get a flavor of that. And so I see them, they see themselves in that regard. They also have a close relationship still with Russia. Uh, They buy a fair amount of crude oil from Russia and many of their military systems are Russian or old Soviet and require spare parts from there. So again, it's a country that straddles many different divides and therefore is very, very important. Um, There's a Mexican election coming up. Again, we think that the ruling party will uh, retain the presidency. The question is what happens uh, in their legislature. Um, Mexico is the biggest trading partner for the United States. Uh, Again, another very large democracy, but one in which rule of law uh, and uh, policing and the judiciary uh, all have eroded uh, in the face of very considerable criminal empires. They're no longer just narco-traficante gangs. Uh, these are m- very substantial organizations. And successive presidents have shrunk from really confronting them in the way that many of us think is necessary. Uh, but for reasonable reasons, again, it would be very, very challenging. Uh, but the erosion, again, of the rule of law and then also the current president's um, affinity for populism and for statist solutions rather than for free market solutions, private sector solutions, is also uh, of concern, and it'll be very interesting to see how much his successor uh, continues those or perhaps uh, modifies them slightly. Keeping in mind, of course, that a president can't run for a second term in Mexico. They get one and done, six year term. Uh, and then the question how much he will continue to influence the party that his likely successor um, will still be part of. Um, there's an interesting election in the European Parliament uh, this year that bears careful watching. Uh, that can indicate where the European continent is going in its sentiment. Um, We've seen the rise of some um, some right of center, some far right of center parties. And of course, uh, in the Netherlands this past year, uh, the the far right actually won the most uh, seats, but has not yet been able to form a government and may not. But we'll see. But again, that's often then reflected in the European Parliament, and it does have influence within the EU. Uh, on certain policies. So that will bear a bit of watching. Indonesia, uh, again, the third largest uh, democracy in the world, um, has an interesting election with the current president's son as the vice president and a former uh, military chief of 20 years ago that I knew back in the day uh, when he was my boss's counterpart, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. And um is the likely uh, odds-on favorite. And we'll have to see then, is there again, uh, is there a tendency toward um, a a degree of authoritarian approach uh, that might be possible? Um, Finally, of course, there's also Russia. I think we probably know what the outcome is going to be. uh, And I don't expect any seismic uh, developments there. There are a number of others uh, that I haven't listed, either because we're certain of the outcome uh, or because frankly, in some cases, the outcome either way is not going to be that transformative uh, for the world.
0: Well, speaking of Russia and Ukraine, when we had this conversation a year ago, you were optimistic about Kiev's prospects and NATO had a strong sense of purpose. But last summer, Ukraine's summer offensive didn't go as well as people hoped, and there were setbacks on the battlefield, and now Gaza is taking attention away from Ukraine. And Putin, it seems, is waiting on Western support for Ukraine to decline so that he can push Kyiv to surrender and demilitarize. So Ukraine's future is not looking so rosy, and there doesn't seem a pathway to victory as defined by Zelensky. So, is it a stalemate in a frozen conflict? Is that the best that Ukraine can now hope for? Where does Ukraine go from here?
1: Yeah, first of all, as you'll recall, I was a bit of a qualified optimist. I was hopeful, certainly, but the qualifications had to do with whether certain systems would get into Ukraine's hands early, early enough to actually be employed. Um, and sadly, that was not the case. The US tanks got in there very late, um, and the other Western tanks in many cases were delayed because of the delay uh, on the U.S. decision on uh, our tanks, uh, Western aircraft, that decision was delayed, the cluster munition decision was delayed, longer range Army tactical missile system still hasn't been made, uh, and so forth and so on. So unfortunately, they were not able to achieve what, uh, again, we hoped for, Um, and Frankly, I think there has to be some credit to Russia, which had not been particularly impressive until that time, but turned out to have established a much more formidable defense uh, than anyone uh, actually realized prior to the offense uh, commencing. And uh, for all of the overhead imagery and all the rest of that in both open source and classified, the extent of the minefields was much greater than was Uh, expected much greater than Russian doctrine calls for in fact much much greater and the density of the mines turned out to be much greater is nearly double what it normally is and then the Russians to their credit have used drones very effectively on top of the minefields so that it can call in very accurate artillery fire uh, on the Ukrainian forces that are trying to breach those minefields and without U.S. or without Western air power, or any air power really to speak of, our doctrine requires air superiority to carry out a breach of a defense as formidable as this. And we've never seen anything uh, as deep uh, and layered as the Russians have established. Um, so they did not achieve what had been hoped. Um, we should note, though, there has been an achievement that is not trivial and has been largely overlooked, and that is very skillful use by Ukraine of maritime drones that have forced the Russian Black Sea Fleet uh, essentially to withdraw, by and large, uh, its ships from the critical Crimean port of Sevastopol, in which they've had ships for many centuries. Um, And that's significant. they have also pushed the Black Sea Fleet largely out of the Western Black Sea And that opens up opportunities for Ukrainian ships to uh, get the very substantial quantities of wheat and barley and other grains uh, to countries that are desperate for it, such as Egypt and others in Africa, uh, noting that Ukrainian uh, grains are their most uh, substantial supplies and account for somewhere around 25 to 30% of the world's export market so that has been achieved and that is significant um but right now the uh, russians actually have the uh, strategic initiative or at least the tactical initiative they are grinding out very very costly incremental gains but they're on the move rather than the ukrainians Um, and the russians have been able to replace the enormous casualties they've been taking Uh, Putin seemingly unconcerned about those levels of of casualties, which is just extraordinary to me, and I'm sure to you, given uh, our own experiences and how difficult casualties are. Um, And he seems to be able to working around some of the constraints, some of the export controls uh, and sanctions, uh, buying drones and missiles from Iran, uh, getting munitions from north korea and perhaps missiles from them as well uh and then replacing to some degree uh the missiles that they have expended uh so that they can continue the pressure on ukraine especially during the winter uh through the air um so it's tough um i don't know that it's absolutely bleak uh but it is um it is certainly very very hard um The only pathway to victory would be the one that was laid out in a very forthright uh, interview by General Zaluzhny, the overall military uh, chief in Ukraine, with whom I spent over two hours the last time I was there in late September. Um, And he laid out various technologies, various needs, various uh, assistance that's required. Um, I don't think Ukraine's going to get all of it. But I think they will get some of it. And I would not discount their very substantial uh, technical expertise, manufacturing skills, uh, just sheer determination and awareness that they're fighting for their very independence and survival and and a variety of other qualities like that. Um, So the future, I think it depends. It depends. Does U.S. assistance and the amount that we hope uh, to see approved in Capitol Hill uh, get signed into law? Uh, does Europe continue to, to follow through? They have some issues with Hungary uh, that they will have to deal with, and I think can and will, but again, it's not smooth sailing. Um, can the Ukrainians continue to generate the replacements for the casualties that they've taken now that that initial burst of uh, patriotism uh, is gradually being tempered? Uh, and the losses have been uh, quite significant. Uh, can the Russians keep doing it on their side? Uh, all of these questions and the you know the relative nature of these, I think, is what's going to determine uh, where it goes from here. Um, and again, I personally strongly support uh, providing everything that we humanly can can uh, to Ukraine. Noting as you observe that there is less attention on it. Uh, because of what's going on in Gaza and the Greater Middle East, and because, of course, of the continued or renewed uh, focus also in the Indo-Pacific region, uh, where deterrence has to be rock solid.
0: So, moving on to discuss China, it has the world's second-largest economy and serves as the largest trading partner for more than 120 countries dominates global supply chains for many critical minerals, has an increasingly capable military, and is increasingly becoming a diplomatic player on the global stage, as you previously mentioned. And yet China is going through this economic turbulence. Are you more worried about a strengthening China or a declining one?
1: Probably a bit of both. Um, and really, it's more about just the state of the relationship uh, between, again, the U.S.-led West and China, um, certainly given China's designs on Taiwan, noting that that is the sole legacy issue left for President Xi, who is now on his third term, an unprecedented third term, uh, after all, others have stepped down after two and could stay for a fourth. Um <clears throat> and noting that, of course, he has dealt with already the other issues, which were Hong Kong, the Uyghurs, uh, Tibet, some others. Um, And so this is the one that remains, and he's told his military to be ready to take action, if necessary, uh, by 2027. Um, So uh, in that regard, you know, you can lay out a strengthening China, which continues to invest very robustly Uh, in its military. And it's going to do that probably regardless uh, of its economic fortunes to the extent that it possibly can. But a declining one, if there are real concerns about domestic upheaval because of continued very high youth unemployment, uh, because of the collapse of the real estate sector, which was the one sector in which many Chinese invested whatever they had, uh, and it's somewhere around 25 to 30% of the economy. Um, if all of a sudden the various debts that they have, not just at the national, but at the subnational level, uh, if those start to emerge as a problem, the general economic uh, slowdown, continued interference in the tech sector, um, innumerable challenges. Uh, and the answer to how do you unify a country if it's going through these kinds of uh, issues often is to uh, appeal to nationalism and do so by painting an outside threat. Uh, we've seen some of this to a degree with the wolf warrior diplomacy, uh, beating up and killing Indian soldiers on in the line of actual control in three different confrontations, many dozens of soldiers. Uh, the confrontations in the uh, Taiwan Strait, the South China Sea, the Yellow Sea, uh, diplomatically, informationally, um, economic coercion, all of these issues, which I would contend have largely been counterproductive uh, because there's much more uh, concern about investing in China now uh, than there was, say, 10 and a half years ago when I joined KKR. Um, In fact, the world has transformed during that period, and I think it's important to note this, that we have evolved from what we used to see as a world of benign globalization in which barriers to trade, capital flows, and investment were being reduced, and global trade was going up at an angle just about like that, uh, to a world of renewed great power rivalries, hence our seminar, uh, in which those barriers have been going up, not down, and global trade has become slobalization uh, and in many cases regionalization. And Global trade has largely flattened out or actually sort of gone up and down, uh, but certainly hasn't been steadily going up the way that it was, again, 10 and a half years ago. And where geopolitics now um, are vastly more important uh, during the investment process. And again, what the KKR Global Institute does is assess geopolitical risk, integrate the macroeconomic analysis and the risks that are identified there, the environmental social governance issues and the risks uh, identified there. Um, And then together with the deal team, which is looking at the financial aspects of a deal, but also incorporates these other issues, uh, goes to the investment committee for a decision. Um, And we see much more concern about uh, prominence to and uh, importance of the geopolitical component of risk, and the most significant element in that uh, has to do with uh, items that are related to China, either investing there or China investing, uh, say with us or with other other companies of our type. Um, so again, I'm this is a relate this is the most important relationship in the world. Um, It would be wonderful if both sides could decide that we should make it as mutually productive and beneficial as is absolutely possible. That's not the case right now. Uh, And therefore, we just have to keep working at it and make sure, above all, that the elements of deterrence are solid uh, so that what our national security advisor has described as severe competition, the relationship as it currently exists, doesn't evolve into confrontation.
0: So, When you look at Taiwan, don't you think that any Chinese leader would see reunification as a historic responsibility? So I wonder, is Taiwan important to the US because of its semiconductors or because Taiwan is a democracy? And do you think the US would be willing to fight for Taiwan to protect it?
1: Um, I think it's important for a variety of different reasons. Uh, one is the clearly the prominence of its semiconductor industry, which basically um, is far and away the biggest and most important in the entire world, although obviously we're now building uh, fabrication plants in the United States, several of them. By the way, Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing country, uh, Company uh, plants, two of them, um, and then a number of others around the United States as well. Uh, to try to reduce the risk uh, to or the over concentration or dependence on Taiwan for the most advanced semiconductors, um, so that's that is crucial. Again, the world runs on semiconductors. The numbers of those in uh, individual devices now are, are staggering, uh, but it's also because it is a fellow democracy and because we believe again that um, these are values and. Uh, principles and so forth to which we subscribe. And if we allow those to be uh, destroyed around the world, then we're going to see a a reduction in the ability of democracies in various countries to withstand pressure uh, from uh, autocratic regimes. Um, The president of the United States has on four occasions, and these are not slip-ups, I don't think. I think it's uh, planned. Uh, He's Four times said that the U.S. would come to the rescue of Taiwan. Yes, his national security has then run out. Advisor has run out and said there's no change to our policy uh, on strategic ambiguity. But at the end of the day, uh, again, that is part of the effort to deter China's uh, actions because again, it's the potential adversary's assessment of your capabilities and your willingness to employ them. Um, Now. One of the lessons of the book that you kindly mentioned early on, in addition, particularly to the overarching intellectual construct for strategic uh, leadership, uh, is a recognition that what happens in one part of the world really does matter in others. And so some of the actions that we have taken in past couple of decades, uh, arguably have undermined deterrence um, in different parts of the world. Uh, I would submit that the withdrawal of our forces, the decision to withdraw our forces from mm-hmm. in Afghanistan and the way that was carried out, probably undermined the deterrence of Russia when Putin was looking at invading uh, Ukraine, uh, given that he underestimated, quite apparently, the willingness of the United States to respond and to lead the Western response uh, as well. Um, and frankly, the way we've kept Europe together and NATO countries together, Europe and North America, et cetera, uh, has actually been, I think, uh, very impressive. But again, that action in Afghanistan was also seized on by President Xi, who said, hey, see, you can't count on the Americans or undependable allies. And look how it went. They're a great power in decline. Um, So we need to be conscious that if there's a red line that turns out not to be a red line, that reverberates uh, in the Indo-Pacific and the most important, again, relationship in the world which is that between the US-led West uh, and China, and our most important military endeavor in the world, which is to ensure that deterrence in the Indo-Pacific is rock solid.
0: Well, John, I've got one last question for you. You are a glass half full guy. You said so yourself. So what are the more positive forces that might be at play in the world? And what sort of positive results might we see a decade from now?
1: Well, I think first and foremost, it's actually the folks in this seminar and, and all of those that, if you will, they represent uh, throughout our great country, a number of other of our allied and partner countries uh, around the world. I think uh, truly it is those individuals uh, and then various systems uh, in our countries, however imperfect our democracies and market economies and uh, all the other elements that that comprise um, uh, a great country are that there are such rewards for innovation, for hard work, uh, for entrepreneurship. uh, And these great universities are arming these individuals uh, to go out and do that and also to serve uh, in uniform and in other government positions, um, international organizations, nonprofits, you name it. And so at the end of the day, it's always about the people. Um, And again, I think that this seminar's uh, members are of that kind of quality that give you confidence uh, in the future. Um, Certainly there are many uh, other uh, developments out there and issues and threats and challenges that should keep us awake at night, except there's not much that keeps me awake at night anymore at this stage in life, um, other than, you know, facing your questions or something like that. But uh, I, I really do believe in um, the future in because of, again, such individuals. And, you know, in addition to the teaching here, I've had probably five other, I think, his academic appointments over the years for those in the last 10 years alone. Um, And so have seen, again, students and not just at Yale, but at at Harvard, at the University of Southern California, the Honors College of City University in New York, uh, Exeter, Birmingham, England, that is, um, and many, many others at which I've just done individual or multiple events uh, over the years. And I'm also a private venture capitalist, invested in some 27 startups. Few of them have blown up, but three are unicorns. And again, it just inspires me to see what individuals are willing to do, taking risk, uh, investing um, not just their other people's money, but their own time and commitment and intellectual uh, capability to to turn a big idea, a powerful big idea, into Uh, A real company. Uh, And again, if you're also in the world where I am with KKR, where we invest in in major companies, um, you get pretty impressed by uh, strategic leaders who are particularly skilled uh, and can perform, again, the four tasks of a strategic leader, getting the big ideas right, communicating them effectively through the breadth and depth of the organization, all who have a stake in the outcome of that endeavor or conflict overseeing the implementation of the big ideas, the energy, the inspiration, the, the example they provide, uh, how they spend their time, their battle rhythm, the, the metrics they use, attracting great people, allowing those not measure enough to move on. And then that very important final step or task, which is to determine how you need to refine the big ideas so that you can do it again and again and again. And there's a lot of great individuals out there that have the skills to do that. Uh, And to, again, turn a a great big idea uh, into a really prosperous, exciting company. And so at the end of the day, that's what still gets me out of bed uh, in the morning and excited for the future of uh, not just our country, but of those of so many others around the world that embrace the kind of principles that, that we hold dear as well.
0: Well, General, thank you very much for your time and for sharing your wisdom with us. Thank you.
1: Always a privilege to be with you, Lady Emma. Thank you.